So please turn with me to Mark 6.53 through 7.30. Big, big chunk of passage here. Mark 6.53 through 7.30. This is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark 6.53 through 7.30. Have you ever noticed how easily we default toward legalism? How easily we find ourselves uh, trying to work our way to God, trying to earn his grace. It's, it's one, of the, uh, the, one of the ways we can fall off the gospel trail here, right? We can veer off into legalism. We can veer off into licentiousness. Today we're going we're gonna to be talking about this, veering off into legalism. I want to share with you uh, a bit of a letter from one of my favorite saints, John Newton. John Newton once wrote to Reverend Joshua Simmons regarding this very matter. You see, he had been made aware of these words by Simmons. Quote, this is, this is Simmons. I hope it is my desire to cast myself upon the free promise in Jesus Christ. But this alone does not give assurance of my personal interest in his blood. Well, Newton's uh, gospel alarm bells, red flags were going off for him, and he wrote him saying this, why not? Well, let's flesh out Newton's question a little bit. Basically, Newton asked, why would your casting yourself upon the promise of salvation in Jesus not assure you of your salvation? Now, Newton goes on to point out to his doubting counterpart that, that if he is relying on other things as the primary evidence of his assurance, then he runs the risk of turning the gospel into a legalistic works-based faith. So, now, Newton's not denying the value of spiritual fruit, evidences of grace. He simply puts them in their proper place. He notes to Newton, tells Simmons, you tell me what evidences you want, namely spiritual experiences inward holiness, earnest endeavors, all this I may allow in a right sense. But in judging on these grounds only, it is common and easy in a dark hour to turn the gospel into a covenant of works. So what Newton wants his friend to see is that there is nothing that if by coming to Christ in faith, there is nothing that will hinder you from gaining salvation by his blood. Jesus will not cast you out. So Newton quotes John 6, 37. Him that cometh I will in no wise cast out. And Newton says this. If you can find a case or circumstance which the words in no wise does not include, then you may despond. Then you may despair. Perhaps one final quote from this letter to his friend. Newton drives the point home. He says, evidences, as you call them, Simmons, are of use in their place. But the best evidence of faith is the shutting our eyes equally upon our defects and our graces and looking directly to Jesus as clothed with authority and power to save to the very uttermost. It's a pretty fitting assertion from the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, right? I think Mark would agree Mark has been showing us all along who Jesus is, making the case for him, the Son of God, the Messiah, who's bringing in this new covenant age of salvation. God knows and Mark knows of our legalistic tendencies, and so the word of God is going to cut against this tendency always, over and over, by showing us 
who Christ is. We were just reminded of the wonder of Jesus walking on the water and all that pointed to, right? And this has been the bulk of what Mark has been up to this point. It has been showing Jesus in his, in his greatness and in his power, in his authority, in order to elicit the right response from us in his presence. But the disciples keep missing it. Over and over, though, Jesus lovingly rebukes them. And impatience comes down to their level and lifts them up to see who he is. Seeing who Jesus is should put into perspective who we are. And so, through a series of three episodes here in Mark 6.53 through 7.30, we will see that the proper response to Jesus, the Son of God, just as Newton was trying to convince his friend of, is desperate faith. As many of you can probably tell from our last adult court seminar, I'm a big fan of biblical theology. I love seeing how all the Old Testament promises, the Old Covenant promises, culminate and are fulfilled in Christ. We're going to see some of those big themes here today. But, but we're also going to see how these themes that culminate in Christ come to us at a very personal level. And, of course, we're going to see the ongoing theme of insiders and outsiders of the kingdom of God. And what we will see is that, that insiders of the kingdom are marked by this desperate faith. We get a picture of what the new covenant heart looks like. But we're also going to get a picture of what the outsider heart looks like. Those who are dismissive of Jesus, outsiders of the kingdom. And look with me at our passage Mark 6:53 through 7:30. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but uh, what we are going to see is that in your Bibles, if mine's an ESV, it's divided up into four sections. First, Jesus heals the sick in Gennesaret in in 6:53 through 56, and you see traditions and commandments in 7 uh, 1 through 13. And then my Bible labels the next. Uh, next, the next section, what defiles a person, seven fourteen through 13, and then the Syrophoenician woman's faith in seven twenty four through 30. We're going to look at these in three episodes. We're going to look at 653 through 56 in episode one, desperate faith. And then we're going to look at episode two, seven, one through 23, and see that the dismissive remain defiled. That's episode two, the dismissive remain defiled. And then in episode three, 724 through 30, we will see the desperate receive cleansing. Desperate faith, episode one, the dismissive remain defiled, episode two, and the desperate receive cleansing in episode three. If you haven't gotten the main idea yet, it's Jesus cleanses the desperate who come to him in faith. So look with me first at episode one, Desperate Faith, 653 through 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So this first episode is casting the theme for the rest of this section. It's the the theme setter for this whole passage. And what we have here 
in verses 53 through 56 is really a summary of Jesus's ministry in Galilee so far. It's, a, it's kind of a summary statement of what he is doing, who he is. And notice, uh, notice that immediately when Jesus steps onto shore in Gennesaret, the people recognize him. This stands in stark contrast to his, to his disciples who did not recognize him walking on the water. And what did they do when they recognized Jesus? They run around the region grabbing everybody they can, friends, family, acquaintance, anybody who is sick and needs help getting to Jesus, and they bring them to Jesus wherever they hear he was. People are laying out in the marketplace begging to touch his garments. Notice two things. They begged, they implored, and they begged to touch his garments. This should remind us of Uh, of the demoniac who once delivered begged to be with Jesus or Jairus who came to Jesus begging that Jesus would heal his daughter. And then of course, it also reminds us of the woman who was suffering with the issue of blood for 12 years, uncurable saying to herself, if even I can touch the, his garments, I will be made well. The same, the the thread, the common thread that's running through all of these scenes is this desperate faith for Jesus. And the right response is this desperate faith. And as we see, everybody who they whom touches Jesus are healed. And this is the same word we talked about. Uh, a few weeks ago, this healing, it's a, it, it points to more than just physical healing. More, Mark is trying to point to us to, to something more than just physical healing. Full deliverance, salvation is what this is a picture of. Jesus' presence here disrupts the complete, it completely disrupts the flow of normal everyday life. Jesus steps in to Gennesaret and and. Everything is upended. People are running everywhere, not just for the sake of themselves, but they're desperate in faith for the sake of others. Does this kind of response mark us? Desperate faith in Jesus does not look like just desperate faith on behalf of ourselves. When we know family, friends, acquaintances who do not know the Lord. Do we do this? Are we desperate in faith for their salvation? This is what desperate faith looks like on behalf of ourselves and desperate in faith on behalf of others. So this summary points back to not only what we've seen, but also where we're going. It propels us ahead. And this is the right response, desperate faith. It sets the tone. And what we will see next, though, is if desperate faith is the right response, well, then being dismissive of Jesus is what will lead to someone remaining sick and remaining defiled. Look with me at episode 2. This is 7, 1 through 23. The, the dismissive remain defiled. We'll look at this, scene, this episode in two parts. Part 1, the dismissive Pharisees, verses 1 through 13. And then part 2, the defiled heart. Verses 14 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. 
And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So while those who know they are sick and desperately seek Jesus, uh, uh, those who know they are sick desperately seek Jesus, those who don't know they're spiritually sick seek to dismiss him. And here we see that the, 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 the Pharisees and scribes coming from Jerusalem come in order to dismiss Jesus. They're looking for a reason to shut him down. And they see their reason. They see some of the disciples eating without washing their hands. They're eating with defiled hands. Now, this, this isn't a concern about hygiene, right? Uh, these, this defiled, another word for this could be common, unclean, impure. They're worried about ceremonial purity. Now, there is no law in, in there is no particular specific law in the law that commands this. It doesn't command people to wash their hands before they eat. But for the priests, this is part of, part of their keeping to the law. They have to wash their hands before any ceremonial service in the temple. So what the, the Pharisees have done, we see that, that they're holding to the tradition of elders. What the elders and the Pharisees have done, as we've said before, is they've built up this fence around the law. They said, we're not going to break the law, so let's, let's build up a fence around it to guard it. And part of that fence is this. Everyone has to wash their hands before you eat. That is what it means to be holy. They're after holiness. So a good impulse to be after holiness. But they've made the critical error by raising up these traditions to the level of and even above the law. So if people, common people, not priests, are not washing their hands before they eat, they are unholy. The Pharisees, they do this with a lot of things, as, as Mark makes clear to us. They go above and beyond just washing hands. Anytime they go to a public market or bumping and jostling with people, they got to come in and they got to bathe is the idea here. Wash themselves. Don't eat or drink or prepare food in any kind of vessel without washing it. Don't even sit on that couch without washing it, this could make you unholy. So they have all of these traditions that they're holding to, and we'll see that they've let go of the law to hold on to these things. The subtext here under all of this, coming and questioning Jesus, is this. Jesus, why do you allow your disciples to remain unholy and defiled? And worse yet, why do you allow them to add to their unholiness and their defilement? I hope you see the irony here. The Pharisees don't even have a proper understanding of what holiness is. They see the uncleanness and defilement is infectious, right? We could be made unholy by drinking from that dirty cup or sitting on this couch. That unholiness will in, in, infect us. How different is this than Jesus? 
His holiness makes everything else holy. His purity purifies the impure. His cleanliness cleanses the unclean. So while the Pharisees marvel at their holiness that they think they have scrubbed into their bodies, but they can't maintain if they drink from a dirty cup or eat from a dirty vessel, Jesus is the essence of holiness. He makes everything else holy that he touches. So we're beginning to see already, who are the unholy ones here actually? Those with Jesus or those against him? So, of course, the issue at hand here is even in their attempt to make themselves holy and clean by establishing these traditions and burdening people with them, the Pharisees are actually adding to their unholiness, to their uncleanness by abandoning and breaking the law. And Jesus calls them out on this. Look at verses 6 through 13. Jesus is going to do basically two things here. First, Jesus is going to identify the Pharisees as hypocrites using Old Testament prophecy. And then Jesus is going to give an illustration of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. And, and the, the, the main idea here is that they are abandoning, rejecting, making void the law, leaving it and holding fast to the traditions of man. Jesus says this three times in verse 8, verse 9, and verse 13. Jesus says, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, thus making void the, the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So they have left the law. They have let go of it, made it void, abandoned it to hold on to these traditions that they've made. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the peop This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus says to the Pharisees who think they're going above and beyond here, You're not actually fulfilling the law, Pharisees. You're actually fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah that says you're a hypocrite. Isaiah 29.13 says this. The, the Hebrew uh, gives a little bit different translation. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So we, we kind of learn something here about what is marking this prideful, legalistic heart of the Pharisees. Because if their commandments are commandments of men, then it's no wonder their fear of God is off because it's not a commandment of God that would make them fear God. It's a commandment of men that leads them to fear men. So one of the marks here of a abandoning God's word, a mark of an outsider heart, is prideful legalism and the fear of man. This is a vicious cycle. The Old Testament law was meant to point, to point God's people to the reality that there was nothing they could do. They were completely dependent upon God's mercy. 
With every repeated washing of the hands, with every repeated sacrifice, day after day, year after year, what should have landed upon them is there is nothing I can do to make myself clean. I need God's mercy. Yet the Pharisees, the the elders, they've seen this and said, oh, my faith isn't in God's mercy My faith is going to be in my ability to keep this law. And so now, as they've added these traditions, what becomes the measuring stick of their holiness? It's not God and his holiness. The measuring stick becomes, oh, did I keep that that tradition, my standard? Did I meet that today? Okay, I'm good. Oh, did I meet the standard of these men? Do I look good in front of them? Then I'm okay. I'm holy. Fear of man and prideful legalism. This is what marks this outsider heart. So Jesus has leveled a charge. The Pharisees are not actually law keepers. They are hypocrites. They've abandoned it to hold on to these traditions, to put their faith in their ability to keep these traditions and and look holy in front of their fellow man. But what Jesus is going to point out is that they're actually abandoning the law and breaking it, and he's going to use an illustration to make this clear. Look at verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This is a little bit of sarcasm on Jesus' part, right? Oh, yeah, you're doing real good at rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus here is using an illustration of, some, of a tradition that the, that the Pharisees have used in showing how it is actually abandoning and breaking God's law. He goes to, he goes to the Ten Commandments itself and points out, Honor your father and mother. And, and, and an extended command from that is anyone who curses father or mother shall be put to death. Now, this, this honoring worked itself out in the covenantal community, the old covenant community, by, by adult children helping to support their parents in old age, financially, by other means that they needed. Now, this meant often sacrificing some of your own personal property, some of your own material resources for the well-being of your parents. However, the tradition of the Pharisees allows for Corbin. Well, what is Corbin? Well, Mark tells us. It's, it's saying that something will be given to God. That is an offering to God. Essentially, then, what Jesus is pointing out is that the Pharisees, by their tradition are allowing people and even even commanding people by their tradition 
If a parent comes to an adult child in need or has need of, of, of help and support, an adult child can say, sorry, mom and dad. Actually, what I was going to give to you to honor you, I've dedicated it to God. So it's going to be going to God. I can't give it to you. The inconsistency, of course, is if you're making a dedication or an offering to God, that doesn't negate the command to still honor your parents, right? So, so the Pharisees have pitted, pitted the law against itself, where if someone takes an oath to dedicate something to God, they're saying, oh, that was going to be to honor you, but now it's going here. But of course, in most of these cases, what they were going to take to give was often kept. It wasn't given immediately to the temple. It was, it was set aside. This is going to be for God. So therefore, I don't need to give you anything. I'm sorry. So by upholding this tradition, the Pharisees are actually, as Jesus says, making void the word of God. You're not doing what it says for the sake of this tradition. Now, this example actually reveals to us another sinful motivation for abandoning God's word. Another, another marker for the outsider heart. The outsider heart is not only a legalistic heart. The outsider heart is not only a fearful heart that fears man. The outsider heart is a materialistic heart. The outsider heart says, if I can just have enough stuff, enough money, if I, if I, even if it means compromising a little bit here in my relationship to God, if I can just build up enough security here, then I'll be okay. We, of course, see this in Mark 10, the rich young ruler, right? He is after everlasting life. I've kept all of these commandments from my youth. But he cannot give up his stuff for Jesus. So Jesus shows a clear inconsistency in the Pharisees. Their prideful legalism, their fear of man, and their finding security in in things other than God has led them to abandon the law. All of their best attempts testify to the fact that man is indeed unholy. What they think they're doing to make themselves holy is actually revealing the very defiled nature of their hearts. What they thought was an outside-in problem is actually an inside-out problem. Problem. So Jesus turns to the crowd to address this very reality, to, to pour the antidote of the, the Pharisees' poison into the ears of those who are listening. And this is what he says. Look at epi- the second half of episode 2, the defiled heart, verses 14 through 23. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? 
Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Clearly, the Pharisees have reversed the order of things. The law, as we noted, was never meant to point to man's unholiness being an outside problem, something that they could wash off. The law was meant to reveal to them that they were in great need of God's mercy, that what I'm doing is not cleansing the heart. And it was to move them to cast themselves upon God's mercy. While Jesus makes clear to the Pharisees, that the problem is, is, so Jesus is making clear to the Pharisees the problem is worse than they even anticipated. You know, they're spending all this time scrubbing, scrubbing, scrubbing. That had to be so laborious, right? I mean, after every time you drank from a, a dirty vessel, had to, had to clean it before you drank from it. I mean, I leave a cup out every now and then at my house and still drink water out of it and According to them, this would make you unclean. But Jesus is, is showing, just as we saw last week, that the depth of human depravity, the depth of uncleanness, is unreachable. It's in the heart. The things you take in aren't touching the heart. They're going out. And, of course, by the heart, we're talking about the center of human spiritual life, the will, the center of who we are. From who we are, our very nature is Sinfulness. And Jesus, by saying there is nothing outside of a person that can, by going into him, can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him, is a radical announcement that even the disciples have trouble understanding. So Jesus explains it to them using digestive analogy, right? And In his explaining this to them, Mark puts this pretty profound little parenthetical explanation next to what Jesus says in the parentheses, for he, uh, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, usually when you have something in parentheses, it's kind of a little aside that is, that is, uh, that is kind of attendant to the main point, right? Well, there might not be a more profound, a profound, a more profound aside in, in Scripture than this right here. Jesus declared all foods clean. So, so in, we just saw that Jesus was, was saying that the Pharisees are abandoning the law. Well, we know that the law clearly specifies that foods are unclean. There are certain foods that should not be eaten. So is Jesus being hypocritical here? Well, what's the, the small difference between Jesus and the Pharisees? What is it? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord. He is the Anointed One. He is what all the law was pointing to. Only he can declare what was unclean, clean. And this declaring of food clean is pointing to something greater he is going to do. He is going to make the unclean heart clean. New covenant hearts. 
And this is all written all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. And we saw some of that this morning. Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord will circumcise your heart. Jeremiah 31, I will, I will write on your hearts and you shall, and I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Ezekiel, I will give them a new heart. This is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has come to give new hearts. And that's what this, this unclean food now being made clean is, is actually pointing to. And this is what Jesus did. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.3 to the Corinthians, You are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God on tablets, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is a huge shift in redemptive history. The old covenant is giving way to the new covenant. It has really good applications for our joy. We as Christians can enjoy things so much more fully and rightly than than, uh, the, than anyone else can. It even comes down when you're eating food. So Evie, Evie loves bacon. Even when we make bacon in the morning, she somehow always ends up with more than us, right? We know that certain foods under the old covenant were unclean. To even be a part of God's covenant community, you had to adhere to these things. Well, at the new covenant age, Jesus is saying all foods are clean. And, and as one Old Testament professor told, told our class one day, he said, every time you eat a bacon cheeseburger, you are eating victory food. When we eat certain foods, we should be thinking about the reality. Oh, we enjoy how wonderful it tastes. But it should also cast our eyes upward and say, Wow, this food is pointing to the reality that Christ has cleansed my heart, that he's given me a new heart. What once was unclean is now clean. And this goes not just for ethnic Jews, but it extends to all people. That was built into this promise as well. Genesis 12, 2 through 3, I will curse uh, those who dishonor you, Abraham, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Built within these big promises are the, are the promises, is the promise that all people, the kingdom is coming for all people from every nation. They all will be made clean with the coming of the Messiah. So while these are, these are massive changes that Mark is pointing to, what we see next in our next episode is that they, have, they, they meet in a very personal place. They meet us in a very personal place. So look at episode 3, verses 24 through 30. Here we start to get a look at what an insider heart looks like, this new covenant heart. 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile 
a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon had gone. So after revealing that the Pharisees, who looked like they should be on the surface, insiders, are actually outsiders, now Jesus goes to a decidedly unclean outsider location, Tyre and Sidon, a region of Gentiles. You wouldn't expect to find an insider of the kingdom here. And then this woman comes to him, immediately recognizing him. We've seen that before. So far, she kind of looks like an insider because she recognizes who Jesus is. But then, Peter, or then, uh, then Mark drops this bomb on us and says, she's a Syrophoenician by birth. Mark is telling us there, she's not even of mixed race Jew. She is 100% Gentile, completely defiled, unclean. But she falls down at Jesus' feet. She has two problems. The first one is obvious. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. The second one we've just kind of unpacked. She herself is unclean because of who she is, a Gentile through and through. But she requests in desperate faith that Jesus would give cleansing. Jesus seems to deny her request. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does this mean? Well, we know the order of salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The children here are, are the, the, the Jews, Israel. The dogs here then, the little dogs, are Gentiles, people who aren't Jews. So is, is Jesus being really mean here? <laughs> Does this seem a little harsh? Just think of everything we've seen Jesus do up to this point. Has he ever been out to squash somebody's faith? No. What has he done every time? He's been out to prove the faith. Jesus says this in order to prove this woman's faith Perhaps to the disciples standing there, to us today for sure. He sees this woman coming and he's not deceived by looks. He sees an insider of the kingdom. And what is her faith in? It's in the, it's, her faith is in the fact that Jesus is here and he will give mercy. So first, notice her humility. She agrees with Jesus. She, she wears this label. Oh, I'm not a child. I'm, a, I'm this little dog. I'm not of your people. I'm a Gentile. She doesn't disagree. She knows she's coming to Jesus with nothing. I have nothing. There is nothing in myself that deserves any blessing you would give. Humility. But second, notice what she does. After saying yes, she calls him Lord. This is the only time in Mark where we see someone directly address Jesus as Lord, and it comes out of the mouth of a Gentile woman. 
She says, Lord. In Matthew, the parallel account tells us she calls him son of David. We know what she, that she understands. You are the Messiah. You are the Lord. You are the one who is bringing the kingdom. And if that's who you are, even though you're bringing it first to the Jews, if you're the one who gives mercy, I'm putting my faith in that. You will give mercy to me too. She latches on to the promises that in the Messiah are coming all the blessings of the kingdom to all peoples. And she says, Lord, not for anything that's in me, but because of who you are. She grabs hold of that promise, grabs hold of Jesus the Lord, and reaps the benefits of the kingdom as he grants her cleansing. So what does a new covenant insider heart look like? Well, it doesn't look like the outsider heart that is prideful and dismissive, legalistic. The outsider heart fears man and seeks man's approval. It reaches for everything else for security, material things, but not God. Legalistic, fearful of man, and materialistic, the outsider heart. The insider, new covenant heart, is marked by humility. There's nothing I bring that can gain anything from you. Recognition of Jesus as Lord who grants all the promises. And an insider heart is marked by desperate faith that casts itself upon the mercy of Christ, and Jesus will not cast out that faith. So what does this teach us? What it looks like to have desperate faith? One thing we see With all the changes, these huge changes, clean food, all people in God's kingdom, new hearts, very personally tells us, you have immediate access to the kingdom. This woman does not go through a priest. She does not proselytize to become a Jew. She does not have to go through a system. She comes straight to the source, Jesus, right to God, and receives mercy. Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have immediate access. When we are in need, Hebrews 4.16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in in time of need. Immediate access. This is the benefit, the personal benefit of the new covenant The new covenant heart is marked by desperation and faith. Desperate, as Cody said, in need of help, in need of cleansing, nothing within myself. Faith, sure of God's mercy in Jesus. Desperate faith. Is there a better picture for desperate faith than this table right before us? The only way our desperate faith to be cleansed is rewarded is because Jesus gave his body and shed his blood on our behalf. We are cleansed because he became defiled. So we come to this table desperate. We we come having examined ourselves in, in humble confession and repentance. And we don't come to this table presumptuously. This bread and this cup point to the, the, the highest cost of our sin, the Son of God. So we come humbly 
It should move us to humility, move us to sorrow for our sin. That's what the sight of these elements should do. So, in light of this, let me lead us into a a time of prayer and confession. Let's bow our heads.